This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight's class is sponsored. Le'ilui Nishmat Naomi Batrifka and for Afwash Lema to Afal Ben Frida. I also want to remind everybody, all women are invited to our women's class on Thursdays at BJX, which is 1601 Quentin Road. 8 p.m. Thursday, 1601 Quentin Road. Cover all bases. Okay. Also for our men's class, they never usually, you know, make that over here, but apparently it works the online advertisement, so let's do it also for the men's class. Men's class are Tuesdays at 6.30 Avenue S. 6.30 is not the time. That's the address. Uh, the time will be 8 p.m. Uh, at Tuesdays at 6.30 Avenue S. Okay. We covered everything? We're good, right? We did everything we need to. Okay. Let us begin. So we're, we're speaking about uh, Tisha B'Av. Um, the problem that a lot of us have in Tisha B'Av is that connection. Like, all right, the temple was destroyed. We understand that it happened almost 2,000 years ago. We're still weeping. We're still sad. You know, like, uh, all right. But, but we understand the concept, or some of us do, some of us don't, but it doesn't actually internalize. Uh, to, to understand the, 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 I guess you could say the severity of it, think of this, uh, this story, this scenario. There was a Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz. They, uh, when they got married, they got married very young. And Bo Hashem, they were very happy. They had Shalom Bayit. They had a good, good harmony at the home. They had Parnassah. They had a lot of money. They built a nice, big, beautiful house. Uh, they had health. There was just one thing that was missing. And the thing that was missing was they didn't have any children. And it really, really, you know, took it to heart. After many years of trying, they decided they're going to start trying to go to doctors, right? The first step of action is usually doctors. Once doctors don't work, the second step of action is rabbis, right? Rabbis always have that. Oh, if this didn't work, they might as well try the other stuff. Um, so they tried all the doctors, and they went from place to place. They got different treatments, different ideas. That wasn't working so well, they decided they're going to go to rabbis. And they went from one rabbi to another rabbi, getting blessings, uh, you know, getting asking for prayers, and eventually, after a few years, they were blessed with a healthy, beautiful baby girl. And needless to say, when people don't have any kids and then they have kids, they act like parents, like all parents should act, even if they had kids, without having to go through that problem. Because what happens is when somebody has such a hard time achieving something, they appreciate all that more. Think of it somebody, uh, let's say, who had a very, very hard time getting married. A very hard time getting married. When they get married, they appreciate that. There's a different level of appreciation. Now, granted, we don't want that. We want everybody to get married early. We want everyone to have panasa, you know, berava. With, you know, we don't want to have the hardships. But once you have the hardships, you learn to appreciate that. Like other people cannot even begin to appreciate that. And this, you know, this, this particularly the woman, uh, the mother, she, you know, took it really to heart. When she finally had that baby, you know, she quit her job. It was the entire world surrounded the baby. That's it. There was nothing else that mattered other than the baby. And she sang to the baby. She played with the baby. She like, you know, the baby just made a noise. She jumped out. Doesn't matter if she slept for 30 seconds, which some mothers, that's all they sleep, just 30 seconds. She just jumped out and she's like, oh, what's something happened to the baby? She was obsessed with the baby. And needless to say, the baby and the mother got very, very closely, uh, you know, attached. A few years go by, the baby gets bigger, and Baruch Hashem, they're blessed with another child, this time a baby boy. And again, the mother is obsessed with the child, because she knew what the hardship was. She knew how difficult it was, and she's obsessed, and she's loving, and she's, the, the connection that they, that they have together, the bond that they have, is so strong that, you know, it literally brings another level of mama's boy or mama's girl to a completely different understanding. <laughs> 
Years go by, uh, they're blessed with more and more children. And it's about when the oldest girl is about 17, 18 years old. The youngest, uh, the youngest, it was the youngest girl who was roughly close to two years old. When the mother started feeling a little bit nauseous, you know, the vomiting. So the first thing that she thought is like, you know, what does a woman think when she's married and she's nauseous and she's vomiting? She thinks, and she's married. She thinks that what? She thinks, oh, maybe I'm pregnant. Maybe it's, you know, it's another one. And the problem was that, you know, it, it was different. It was something a little bit different. So she went to the doctor. She said, doctor, you know, I'm having the symptoms that I think I'm pregnant, but I'm not sure. They ran some tests and they said, listen, you're definitely not pregnant. Uh, but because you're nauseous and you're vomiting, just stay off certain foods and relax and hopefully it should go away. So she goes and she follows the doctor's orders and uh, the nausea and the vomiting doesn't go away. And in fact, it gets worse and she starts having pain in her stomach. And she comes back to the doctor a few weeks later. She says, Doc, I don't know what to tell you. She says, it's, it's getting worse. And the doctor says, you know what? You're definitely not pregnant. I'll test, you know, we tested you again and again and again. He says, we'll send you for some additional tests. They sent her for some tests. And the doctor said, after the test, give me a few days and we'll get back to you. They get a phone call. It was Thursday night. They get a phone call Thursday night. And they say, uh, the doctor says, hey, listen, um, I need you. The test came back. I need you and your husband, you know, come back in the office uh, you know, tomorrow right away in the morning. And the doctor hangs up. And the first thing that, that she felt was her heart go, you know, all the way down. The elevator just shot down. Her heart just dropped. She says, what does that mean? She says, what do you mean I have to go in? Like, if it was good news, the doctor would have said, don't worry about it. Everything's okay. You know, it's a virus. But they didn't say come in. And she told her husband, the husband also, they were broken about it. They could not sleep at all that entire night. The next morning, they drive to the doctor's office. It's not even open yet. They're sitting over there waiting. Finally, the doctor comes in. They sit down in the office. And the doctor says, listen, there is no easy way for me to tell you this. But uh, um, not only are you not pregnant, but you have a very, very serious condition that is, uh, I don't know how to say it, it's terminal. And uh, he said, there are really two options that you have in front of you. You know, it's really in an advanced stage. And... We don't know if any treatment is going to work. There is one very, very aggressive treatment that you could try, but we can't promise anything. And the doctor says, you know, take a few days, discuss it, you know, think about it, and then, you know, get back to us and let us know what you, what, what you decide. And, you know, the husband and the wife, they were torn. They, they, they were, they broke down. They didn't know what to do. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, it's such a shock came out of nowhere. And they went home, they discussed it, they called the rabbis, they called the doctors. And they decided they're going to go for treatment. He says, they can't. The woman is a young mother. says, a young woman. He says, can't just give up. He says, no, we're going to go for a treatment. They call the doctor and says, we're going to do the treatment. The doctor says, listen, it's not easy treatment. It's going to break you down physically, mentally. It, it, it's a very, very rough treatment. Are you sure you want to do this? And he says, yes, 100%. We can't give up on life. We have to. We're going to try. And the doctor says, fine. And they start the treatment. And the doctor warned them, as the treatment progresses, you're going to get weaker and weaker. And it's going to be more and more difficult for you to go and to you know, to function day to day as you used to. And in the beginning it was fine. She came home, she was able to work, interact with her kids, gave the same attention to the kids. They didn't say anything to the kids, they didn't want to worry them. But eventually, you know, mommy started getting a little bit weaker and a little bit weaker. Till the point that, you know, she, she came home but she was always in bed. So the kids were asking, like, what's going, what's going on with mommy? What's wrong with mommy? And, you know, they said, you know, mommy's sick, mommy's not feeling well. A few weeks go by, uh, you know, with this going on, and the doctor calls calls both the parents in and says, "Listen, says we've tried the most aggressive treatment that we have, but it's not looking good. It says it hasn't. We haven't progressed anything. It says you want my personal medical, you know, professional opinion? Stop it. You're ruining it. 
you have a few more months left to live. Says, why are you going to live this way? Get off the treatment. Live the last few months that you have as happy that you could be. And he says, listen, I know it's very hard to hear this thing, but you have to accept this is this is my my professional opinion, and you're more than happy to go and go to any other medical professional uh, to go and get a second opinion. And that's what they did. They went to four other medical doctors that are that these this was their specialty. They all said the same exact thing. He says, listen, it's not there's nothing to talk about. It's done. He says, you're going to go through all this. In the last few months, your child, children are all going to see you sick and, and withered. Better to get off it and live your, your, your last few months peacefully. So they didn't have any choice. They decided to get off the medication. And the mother got a little better. But now, you know, when, it hit, when reality hits, when you hear, God forbid, no one should ever hear, should hear this. You only have a you know, few months left to live. The world is a different world. You know, you live a different life. And she was obsessed with her children. And this is all that she did. She, for the next few months, all that she did, she had mommy and me time for everybody. Everybody would have one-on-one time with mommy. And she would tell them how much she loves them and how much she cares about them, their strength, their weaknesses. It's as if they're, you know, she's giving them a lecture every single time. Until you know, the kids didn't understand what's going on up here. Until you know, she got sicker and sicker and was getting closer to the time. And the, you know, the doctor said, listen, you know, you're alert and oriented right now. You're able to speak. You know, use this time wisely. She understood what the doctor meant, and she went and she started. And you know, she started feeling weaker and weaker until finally she decided she's going to have a one-on-one meeting with each child. And eat, you know, the oldest child came in, and she broke the news to the child. And she says, "Listen, you know, it's not a secret that mommy's sick, and you know, mommy's not going to be around here that much longer." And the second that the daughter heard this, now generally people understand when things are. People pick up the hints, but when you hear things, it really comes as a shock. Her eyes started swelling up with tears. Tears started dripping down. I was like, what do you mean, mommy? He says, well, we need you here. And she's like, I really want to be here. I really, you know, I understand, but it's coming close for a time that, you know, mommy's moving on. And, you know, the, the older children had a very, very hard time grasping it. And she went and she spent two, three hours with each and every child and said, listen, you know, I love you. I care about you. You should know that even though if I'm not going to be here, I'm always going to be caring about you. This woman, when she, uh, you know, when she had a hard time, you know, conceiving, she went and she turned to prayer. That was her. That was her outlet. And everybody knew. All the children knew. When mommy prays, no one bothers mommy. Her, she, her, you know, tears were flowing down. It was. It was something. that was out of the world experience. And the mother told the children, each and every child, says, you know, I pray for you every single day. And says, don't think that's going to stop when I'm not going to be here. Every single day, I'm going to continue praying for you. I'm going to continue watching over you. I'm just not going to be able to do it from right over here. The children obviously took it very, very difficult. The youngest child was only two years old. And, you know, what are you going to tell a child who doesn't understand? You know, he's sitting over there. He sees his mommy crying. He's like, mommy, why are you crying? Why are you sad? And, you know, mommy says, mommy's going away and for a while. And, you know, it, it's very hard for the child to grasp. And the, child, the younger the child was, the harder it was for them to grasp or if, it was, if they were able to grasp at all. Two days after she had this one-on-one meeting with every child, she returned her soul to her maker. And the funeral, every funeral is brutal. There's no funeral that would... You know, that was like, oh, that, you know, that went pretty well. Every funeral is a bad funeral. But a funeral that you have little children dealing there with a mother loss, that's something that's completely, you can't, you, no one can relate to that. I remember when I was in high school, I had a, a very close friend of mine that lost his mother. It was ninth grade. And we all went to the funeral. The entire class went to the funeral. And, you know, to be honest, I don't even remember where the funeral was. I don't remember any single word of the speeches that happened in the funeral. I was there. 
I don't remember driving there. I don't remember driving back. I remember nothing. There's one scene that I remember, and I remember very, very clearly. And that scene was when my friend and his family, his older brothers, his younger siblings, came in, and they were just crying and screaming, Mommy, Mommy. So that's a, that's a visualization that I can't, I can't get out of my head. So that's something that you can't even understand. Unfortunately, you know, it, what happened happened. They went, the funeral went, and the shiva came. When they were sitting shiva, the, you know, the family, you know, obviously was taking it very hard. The little two-year-old was sitting around, was running around. They saw all their, their siblings sitting on low chairs. They didn't understand what, she didn't understand what's going on. She's running, she's playing, you know, she's playing with her truck, her doll, whatever it is that she's playing with, and she's having a good time. She's laughing and she's playing. Everyone else is sitting and crying. And you, you know, the people that are visiting, I'm wondering, like, look at this. Look at this child. A two-year-old child doesn't even understand the severity of the situation that she's in. She's two years old. You can't explain it. That two-year-old child, that's what we are on Tisha B'Av. We come on Tisha B'Av, we're sitting there, we're laughing, we're joking, but like, okay, how many more minutes till we could eat? 762? Okay, cool. We're sitting over there, we're that two-year-old child. We're that two-year-old child. The temple was destroyed. The essence of Judaism was gone. And we're sitting over there, and we're trying to figure out how long we have left to live. Maybe we could watch a movie. We'll pick a sad movie. Don't worry about it, Rabbi. We'll pick a sad movie. You know, make us sad, it'll make us cry, and that will get us through the day. If we're that type of person, and we all are, and we all are that type of, you know, that, that's, if that's our scenario, we're that two two-year-old child sitting at the shiva playing and we don't even understand the concept that we're dealing with the destruction of the temple that unfortunately is coming up I mean, hopefully we not have to fast this year but if we do we have to think about it what are we doing do you go and do you for a second shed a few tears for the temple do you even understand if you don't shed a few tears for the temple just know you're that two-year-old child who just lost their mother and has no idea what's going on. If you're able to, the more that you understand the severity of this day, the importance of this day, that's how older you are and that's how much you understand on this situation. You know, Tisha B'Av is the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. And it's something very interesting when you think about it. There are two periods in the Jewish calendar where we, we mourn. We don't listen to music, the men don't shave. We have special customs that we figure out to mourn. So one of them is obviously the, during this three-week period that we are in right now, and that is we're mourning the destruction of the temple. Anybody know what other time period we mourn in? This, this fear. Anybody know what we mourn during that time? Well, let's say the Talmidim, right? The Talmidim of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was one of the greatest rabbis of his, of his generation. He lost 24,000 students. Not just anybody. He's talking about 24 of the thousands of the greatest rabbis died during that period, time period. We mourn during that time because we lost so many holy and great people. But why did they die? Anybody know why they died? Oh, very good. Same, same idea. See, sisters know. Okay. Sinat Chinam is sort of a stretch. They didn't treat each other with respect. Now, many people don't put this two and two together. But think of the connection. For the three weeks right now, where we are right now, we're mourning for what? For baseless hatred. That is the, the reason that the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. We're mourning during the other time period in the year, during, during between Pesach and Shavuot. We're mourning the, 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 the loss of 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. For what? Because they did not treat each other with respect. Do you see the, the connection? Did not treat each other with respect and baseless hatred, there's something going on over here. There's something going on. If you're not putting this connection together, then you're doing Judaism, just cruising through it. Whenever you're living Judaism, whenever you are working Judaism, whenever you are practicing Judaism, you have to think, why? What's going on over here? What am I doing? What is the situation at hand? We have, at one point, we have a fact that they did not treat each other respectfully, which 
again, it's under the same umbrella of baseless hatred. It's not the same exact thing, but obviously it's the same uh, umbrella of baseless hatred. This is the only time period in the Jewish calendar that we mourn. Why? What is going on in here? There must be something over here. There are many sad days in Jewish history. There are many sad days. Unfortunately, we have way too many to count. But when you think about it, the part where we mourn, we mourn, we do, there's like a, it's a mourning period, that should stick out to us. It should be like, okay, this is something serious. We've got to think about what's going on over here. There's a Gemara in Brachot. In Brachot, page 28, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, before we even continue, we have to discuss who Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai lived through the destruction of the Second Temple. Not only did he live through the destruction of the Second Temple, he was the leading rabbi, one of the leading sages of that time. Needless to say, that is huge, right? You're not talking about a rabbi that, you know, learns part-time, you know, does, you know, you know, has a long beard, you know, it splits in the middle while he walks, you know, it's like, you're talking about a rabbi during the time of the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. We get, this is before the Gemara, this is even before the Mishnah was written down. And the leading rabbi during that time. And I want to share with you a story that's brought down in this Gemara in Barachot, page 28. Rabbi Yochanan Zakai felt sick. He was terminal, he was dying, it was coming to the end of his life. His students came to visit him. And the students came to visit him. He saw that the great rabbi, the biggest rabbi of that generation, was crying. They went to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, why are you crying? What's going on? Why are you crying? And Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh said like this. He said something very interesting. He said three different points that I want to bring out. He said, number one, he said that, you know, if I was coming in front of a mortal king, a king that dies, so if this king is angry with me, all right, eventually he'll get over it. If this king goes and puts me in prison, all right, eventually he'll, you know, he'll get over it, he'll take me out. Or if it stays, everything, whatever, everything is temporary. If this king goes and even kills me, that's still temporary. We all know that this world is temporary. The next world is the main world. So everything is temporary. But what am I going to do now that I'm meeting the king of kings? I'm sitting in front of God. If he gets angry at me, that's eternity. If he puts me in prison, that's eternity. If it, there's no, you, you can't compare that. And then Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh says something very, very interesting. He says there are two paths in front of me. One is leading to Gehenom, the other is leading to Gan Eden. He says, and I don't know which path I am leading to. That's what Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh, the greatest sage of that time, said. Then Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh says, uh, goes on and continue. And the students, I'm sorry, go and they say, uh, Rabbi, bless us. Can you give us a blessing? And the rabbi says, the blessing is, may it be his will that the fear of heaven should be upon you like the fear of people. Meaning, that you should fear God like you fear people. So the students were like, that's it? I'm like, we should be a lot higher level. Rabbi Yochanan Zaka says, Halavai, if only you'll be on this level, we'll be okay. And then the Gemara goes on, and this is the third point, that before he died, Rabbi Yochanan Zaka says, prepare a cheer for Hizkiyahu, the king of Israel, says, prepare, prepare a cheer for him because he's coming to escort me into the next world. That is the end of the Gemara. Now, let's try to understand this Gemara. This is a very, very difficult Gemara. First of all, um, you're talking about the greatest rabbi, roughly about 2,000 years ago, is not sure if he is going to heaven or to Gehenom. If he's not sure if he's going to heaven or Gehenom, where does that leave us? Like, we are not even the dust of the dust of the dust of this rabbi. If he's not sure, like, can we even c- c- begin to consider what our end is going to be? What does that mean that he doesn't, he doesn't know where he's going into? So some people may say, well, maybe it's humility. He's humble. People very much misunderstand humility. People think humility is, you know, someone says, okay, you're a great man. <laughs> no, I'm nothing. I'm very humble. You know, I'm nothing. I am a nothing of a nothing. Uh, that's not humility. Humility does not mean that you don't understand your greatness. Moshe Rabbeinu was the most humble person in the entire world, the entire generation, entire world. He knew his value. 
When it came time, for example, for the for Korach, he knew to stand up. When it came time against Paro, he knew to, he didn't get walked over anybody. That's not humility. Humility does not mean that you know that you're nothing, you are nothing, you say that you're nothing, and so on and so forth. Humility means that you know that everything that you have comes directly from God, has nothing to do with you. But you know your power, you know your source. Rabbi Yochanan Mitzakai knew who he was. He was a leading sab, he was a nasi, he was a leading rabbi during that time. He knew who he was. So what was the question that he was not sure if he's going to Gehenom or if he's going to Ganahedin? It doesn't make any sense. I remember once before Yom Kippur, speaking to a very small group of people, and uh, one person said, you know, as they got up, you know, I got to go prepare for Yom Kippur. So there was another woman over there, she says, what do you got to prepare? You know, there's no cooking, there's no, they're like, what, what are you preparing? She says, no, I'm preparing spiritually. And this woman answered, she says, oh, you know, I don't need to prepare anything, I'm good. And the first thing that came to my mind, I held myself back, was, you're not good. Uh, you're far, I mean, like, you know, like, I, this woman does not dress modestly, does not cover her hair and she's married. There's a, you know, the kashrut level is, you know, at best. You know, and you think that you're good? You know what's something very interesting? Most people that think that they're good are the ones that are not good. The people, if you realize it, you have the leading rabbis, you know, the, you know, even in our generation. I saw a video, I saw a clip. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was Chacham Avadia Yosef meeting with Rabbi Chaim Pinchas Scheinberg. And they were meeting two great sages at the time. They came together and they were crying. Right? There's a whole, it was a, the story in itself, we're not going to get into it. They were, they, were sitting in there, they, were, they were sitting in there and they were, they were crying together. Now what were they crying? Uh, best friends that haven't seen each other for a long time? That was not the reason that they were crying. Right? They were sitting over there and they realized the severity of the situation. They realized that the higher level that you are, the more serious that you see it. Which is something very interesting when you think about it. On Yom Kippur, the more you cry, the more serious you, you feel the day is, you realize the more higher level that you are in. The, the lower level, if you don't care, you don't cry, you don't have the connection, it's, it's done. You don't, you don't even have, you don't even realize what you're missing. The same thing with Tisha B'Av. If you come at Tisha B'Av and you're not even able to shed a single tear, then you know that you have a problem. That you have a problem. I know that some people, especially with men, they told me they haven't cried since they, you know, they got weaned off the bottle or they got potty trained. I'm like, dude, you have more problems than you could even imagine. Alright? There's a, you know, it, it's, there's something different that's going on over here. There's something greater that is going on over here. Now, in order to stand, understand this Gemara, we have to go to a different Gemara in Gitin, page 56. And this Gemara is also during the time of Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai. And there was a siege. The Roman government went and sent in Vespasian. He was the Roman uh, general during that time. And he surrounded, he conquered all the surrounding lands, and he surrounded Jerusalem. And he surrounded Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem they had enough resources. They had three very, very wealthy people. They're there. This is during the time of the destruction of the temple. They had three very, very wealthy people. How wealthy were, were they? They had enough resources to sustain the entire Jerusalem, the entire city with all its population for 21 years. If you think about how much... People just read the story, hear the story, they don't even think about Think about how much food you have to have in your house that you never have to leave the house for 21 years. Think about how much... Now think about that for you know for for an entire city there were three extremely wealthy people that had enough for this and they had storehouses over there in Jerusalem and everything was set up the problem was because when there was a siege you know there's no there's not like you know you can't go out and be like all right we'll start it tomorrow time you know to you know got to go to the supermarket got to pick up some a siege is siege it's it's a life and death they besides having the problem of the siege they also had another problem it was an internal civil war going on in Jerusalem it was split up there were one group the rabbis, for example, they wanted 
to surrender to Rome. They wanted to work with Rome. It says there's no point. We're not going to win. Let's deal with it. There was another group. Let's call them the Zealots. We're going to call them that because that's what they were called. And they wanted to fight. They wanted to fight to the end. And it was going back and forth. What should we do? Yeah, fight, fight, fight. And it became, you know, it became very, very hostile over there. To the point that the Zealots went and they destroyed all the storehouses that we had over there in Jerusalem. The three storehouses from the three wealthy people over there, they destroyed everything. Which means is, now the Jews are no longer surviving for 21 years. If any, if any years. Why did the Zealots do that? They wanted to go and say, listen, now you have no choice, now you have to fight. They were pushing them to fight. It was during this time that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was sitting over there, he was leading Sage, and he said, listen, he says, I gotta go speak to the general. I gotta go speak to the other general. The general, it's not gonna look good. People, uh, we're not gonna go into that. I think we spoke about this maybe two years ago over here. Uh, we spoke about what happened during that time. And, uh, that, you know, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says, I need to speak to the Vespasian. Thank you. And he went to, uh, the, you know, he, he went to his, his brother-in-law, Abbasika. His brother-in-law was one of the people involved in the Zilats group. And he says, listen, I need to make an appointment. I need to go out of the city, uh, city wall. I need to speak to the, you know, the head of the Roman uh, general. And the head of Zilat says, listen, it's not going to happen. They're not letting anybody out. Who's not letting anybody out? The Jews inside, the Jews, the Zilats who are, who are controlling the, 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 you know, the inner circle, they're not letting anybody in or out. So Abbasika said, listen, here's a plan. He says, you want to go out? This is what you're going to do. So pretend that you're sick. Call your students over. Get it a whole fanfare. Everybody knows that big rabbi is sick. And then, and I'm using air quotes, then die. And when you die, put yourself in a coffin and let, let your students go and carry yourself out to the outskirts of the city. Once you get out of the city, then you'll, you'll be out and then you'll be able to go out to, to meet Vespasian. This is the only way that this is going to work. So Rabbi Yochanan Zaka says, it's fine, sounds like a plan, let's do it. He started, word got out that he's sick. Everybody, you know, it came out. And then, you know, a short while later, it says that he passed away. The students put him in a coffin and they car- two trusty students, call- you know, carried him in a coffin and carried him outside. When they carried him outside, you know, they came by the door and the zealots were guarding the door. And it says, what's going on over here? I says, didn't you hear? This is Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai, the greatest rabbi. He's passed away. We're going to go outside to bury him. And the zealot says, you're going to go bury him? Okay, very interesting. Let's just make sure that he's dead. And they're like, what do you mean? Let's make sure. So they wanted to go and they wanted to put a spear through the coffin. And they said, you know, and the rabbi is still alive. And he says, you're going to put a spear through the coffin? Imagine what the Romans are going to say. He says, the, the big rabbi and this, the Jews are killing, are putting, it's not, where's the kavod? Where's the honor? Where's the respect for the rabbi? And Zila says, you know what? You're right. Okay, fine. All right, they open the doors and they said, go out. They go out, they put the coffin down, the, the students come back in. A short while later, Rabbi Yochanan Zakkai comes out, Mechayah Metim, he gets out and he goes straight into Rabbi, the, the general's tent of Vespasian. He walks into the tent of Vespasian and he says, he starts, uh, you know, uh, speaking to Vespasian as your majesty. Vespasian stops him and says, whoa, whoa. He says, I should get you killed right now on two accounts. Number one, he says, you're treating me like the emperor of this, your majesty. I'm not the majesty. I'm just a, you know, Roman governor. And number two, if I am indeed such a high power official, I'm like a, you know, an emperor, what took you so long to get here? He says, you should have came to me a long time ago. So Rabbi Yochanan Zaka answered him and he said, listen. He said, I'll answer both your questions. Number one, he says, you may not be emperor now, but you're going to be emperor soon. He says, how do I know that? Because Jerusalem is not going to fall into anybody unless he's a high, fat, he's a high ruler. And he says, it's going to fall into you and you're going to, and you're going to go, you're going to get into a high official, you know, high government power. Number two, why couldn't I come to you closer? He says, I tried to, I wanted to, but I couldn't. He says that you don't know what's going on in there. There's a civil war going on between the Jews. He says, the Jews are fighting against the Jews. It's very unfortunate what's going on over there. The zealots are taking over. So while the rabbi was speaking, all of a sudden a messenger comes from Rome. And say, all hail majesty, you know, Vespasian. You know, the, the, the royal emperor, what happened was the royal emperor passed away. And who was appointed next? Vespasian was appointed next. 
He was appointed, this is while he was speaking to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. The, the Vespasian was so impressed by how the Rabbi Yochanan had the force, I had the understanding to know that he was going to happen before it happened. He said, listen, he says, whatever you request, I'll grant it. I'm very impressed with you. Whatever you want, you, you could have. So, Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai says, okay, I want three things. Vespasian says, shoot, what do you want? And he said, number one, he says, there's a town called Yavne, and this is where all the leading sages are. Please, when you conquer Jerusalem, when you conquer everything, when you conquer everything, Please spare the sages. Especially says, you got it. Check. Next. What else is up? He says, there is a family. The family of Rabban Gamliel. This is the descendant of the house of David. The king of David. He says, that family, please do not destroy. Please make sure that they're intact. He says, check. You got it. What else? And he says, finally, there's a very, very holy rabbi by the name of Rabbi Tzadok. Rabbi Tzadok fasted for 40 years so the temple shouldn't be destroyed. Do not harm him. Get him a doctor so you could heal him because he's very sick because he's been fasting 40 years. He's like, check and done. That's it. The, the thing was sealed and they went off. This is the three requests Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai asked. Now the rabbis, there was Rabbi Yosef and some say it was Rabbi Kiva. They said they didn't really agree with Rabbi Yochanan and Zakkai's, you know, three requests. They said, listen, you had a choice from the new emperor to ask for something. What would you ask for? Don't destroy the temple. Don't destroy... Why didn't he go big? You know, go big or go home, right? Why didn't he go big? He said, listen, I want, don't destroy the temple. You're going to be the greatest emperor. You're going to be the great. Don't destroy the temple. Don't destroy the, don't destroy Jerusalem. Why didn't he ask for that? Rabbi Yochum and Zaka's idea was, tefasta, maruba lo tefasta, tefasta mu'a tefasta, which means is, if you try to get a lot, you're not going to get anything. If you try to get a little bit, you grab something. So he said, the Romans were so much involved in, you know, conquering Jerusalem, it's not going to happen. He says, if I ask for that, it's going to get shot down. I wanted to ask for something that's going to go and going to be, a, you know, uh, um, you know, will be will be credited and will actually uh, will actually happen. Now, with that story in mind, we have to go back to the Gemara and Bachot that we spoke about earlier. We said that Rabbi Yochanan felt sick. His students came to visit him. He says, "I have two roads in front of me. One paved one paved towards Gehenom. One paved to Gan Eden. I don't know which way I'm going." And then he finished off and he says, "Oh, you want a blessing? The blessing that I'm going to give you is that you should fear God like you fear people." So, with the question that we ask is the biggest rabbi. What do you mean you don't know which road you're coming? We know, of course. What do you mean? If you're not going to heaven, nobody's going to heaven. Like, if, if all the people, why are you so nervous about it? And the answer is, the reason why he was so nervous about it, he was doing a retrospection, an introspection, actually, in his life. And he said, you know what? I made a choice. A very, very large choice. You realize that this choice that he made, the three requests that he asks for, uh, you know, for, for his patient, this is an eternal, this is going to affect the Jewish nation for eternity. Whether he makes one or whether he makes the other. And now he's sitting in his deathbed and he's asking himself, did I make the right choice? He says, I don't know where I'm going to end up. I don't know if I'm going to end up to, to heaven. I don't know if I'm going to end up to hell. I don't know if my choice was right. He was thinking about it. This is a tremendous choice. And, you know, to, to do this, this is, by the way, is a very, very important thing that we have to think every once in a while. Preferably, you're supposed to do it at the end of each day before you fall asleep. Did I make the right choices today? You know, we spoke about this on, uh, I believe we spoke about it in Shabbat. Um, that the idea was, why is it during the time of the flood, didn't God go and send somebody to do a kirov on all the people? Get them, let them do, you know, let them do tshuva. Why did, during the time of Sodom and Amorah, why didn't God send Abraham and say, hey, go do kirov? And the answer is, is that if you don't think that you're doing anything wrong, you're never going to change. During the time of the flood, they didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. Why? Let's say it says, the, the, the land was filled with, with, with stealing. We gave it an example last time. If everybody go went and they stole just a little bit, and you can't pay anything back, if you, it's less than a shavar pruta, it's less than a penny, how do you pay somebody back? So rather when they stole it, they, were, they, were, they didn't have to pay anything. So in their mind, they stole something, but 
I'm not liable to pay anything. So if I'm not liable to pay anything, I didn't do anything wrong. If I do anything wrong, then I'm never going to change. If you think you're never going to change, that's it. It's game over. So to the story, the story of Sodom and Amor. Sodom and Amor did not want to do any charity. Why didn't want to do any charity? Because you should listen to God. If God made you poor, there must be a reason that you have to be poor. If God made you rich, there must be a reason. But to go and start manipulating, I should give you money, make you rich now? So that's that's change. That's manipulating. That's playing a divine hand. So that's not that's not the right way. So in their mind, their idea of not giving charity, which didn't stem from this, stem from their, their, you know, they were stingy. They didn't want to give away the money. They made the excuse after that. It says that because they did that, so I, you know, there, there is no choice. There's no any option that they're ever going to repent. Because if you don't think that you're doing anything wrong, you're never going to repent. Rabbi Yochanan and Zakai said, "Listen, we have to do an introspection. We have to think: Did I make the right choices?" He had this thought, and he says, "You know what? Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe I didn't do the right choice." The In order to answer this, the, we have to go to, to, you know, to the final part of that Gemara that said that they, the, the, the students asked him for a blessing. And he says, may the fear of heaven be like the fear of people. Which means, may you fear God like you fear people. What does one thing have to do with another? He's scared of going to heaven. There must be a connection over here. It's written one after another. What is the connection that's going on here? So I was thinking about this today, and I came up with a possible chidush, a possible answer. Um, this is my own personal, so may, you know, like just just bear with me with this uh, with with this thought. When we're faced with a hard decision, when we're faced with a tough tough uh, choice that we need to make, the bigger it is, the more factors we need to consider. Now, think of it like this: Let's say somebody wants to take a certain job, and this job requires a lot of travel. And he wants to take the job, but then he has to ask his wife. You know, his, his wife is not going to see him so much. The kids are not going to see him so much. It's not only his, you know, his his uh, his decision to make. Now it's his wife. Now, and there's so many other factors that he has to, you know, to consider it. And if she doesn't want it, then you know that really plays a factor with it. Let's say, you know, uh, let's say somebody wants to steal something, and he really wants to steal something, but he's nervous that if somebody's watching, so his decision is going to be changing depending on who he's watching and what's going on over here. When, when Rabbi Yochanan is saying, says, make sure that you fear God like you fear people, which means is that if you always go, and if you always see that there's somebody watching you, you'll behave very differently. Think about it this way. If uh, <clears throat> people dress a certain way when they go see a big rabbi, some people don't. Some people doesn't matter. You know, um, I give some some of my the girls' classes. I don't even understand how they even come to class. Now, Bo Hashem, we've, we've fixed it. You know, Bo Hashem is becoming you know very very modest. But it, when we first started the girls' class, they know they're coming to a shul. They know they're coming to a Torah class. They know they're going to be sitting in front of any you know somebody teaching Torah. Wouldn't you think about maybe putting on a sweater? You know, just cover part of your body a little bit. Like, wouldn't that be? So some people, unfortunately, were fell so far that it doesn't even, uh, you know, that doesn't even enter the, uh, enter their mind. But I guarantee you, those people, if they need to go and speak to a, you know, a a some sort of like high ruler, and this ruler is very very strict, there's some some Islamic ruler. They're gonna dress in the hijab. They're gonna put everything on. They're gonna cover it with sunglasses. Their eyes. They're gonna be tzniyas or tzniyas You know. Um, so, but think about it this way: if they would go to this Muslim sheik, they know they have to dress modestly. But they go to a rabbi, they, you know, whatever it's God, whatever the rabbi's not gonna say anything. Have the fear of the sheik, like you fear God, and then you're gonna, then, you know, then you're gonna be, uh, then you're gonna be, you know, okay. But think about it also more: if you have a your boss watching you, how will you work? If they're watching you, you know, very differently. If your children are watching you, how will you behave? If you want to watch something online and your child is sitting right over there. Are you going to be watching that or are you not going to be watching that? If you're, if you see your spouse always constantly watching you, how will you, it changes your decision. Your choices in life change. 
If let's say somebody who you respect is watching what you're doing, oh, you're gonna be very, very careful. Even more so, by the way, if someone respects you. If, so if someone respects you and he's watching you, you're gonna even be even more so. Oh, come on, I have a, have a, you know, I have a reputation to stand. You know, this person, even though, even though what he thinks is not true, he might think that you're the biggest righteous or, you know, whatever it is, but even though it's not true, but come on, you feel like you have to do anything, which means is your decisions in life change depending on who's looking and who's watching and what effect that that has it. You know, yeah, if you think about it like this, if you think about moving through life, imagine that you go through life, that there is a, Floating video camera, and we don't have, now they actually exist. Uh, these drones that just follow you, they follow you all the time. Imagine you have this endless battery. This drone is constantly following you throughout the entire life, except for your bathroom showers, all those type of things. But anything else, it's constantly watching and it's constantly filming it. And not only is it constantly watching, constantly filming it, it's also being live streamed to about two, three million people. The people are very interested in your life, and uh, you know, to show everybody's go obsessed with it, and uh, you know, you have millions of people are watching it. What difference is your day-to-day going to be if you have everybody that's you know watching you? Imagine, and let's say they know all the laws of what you need to do. You need to wake up, you have to wash your hands. You need to go to pray, how you're supposed to pray. How you... All the laws are coming, it's a split screen when it comes up, right? When you come to synagogue, it says a split screen. What a righteous Jew does, and then what you do. You know, So they see exactly what should be done and what should not be done. How different is your life going to be? How different is your life going to be when you realize that other people are watching you? How different are your decisions going to be? Are you going to get angry? Are you going to get upset? You need to make a decision. Should you learn or should you go to sleep? Should you go to, to, you know, to our Torah class or should you go and, you know, take a very long hot bubble bath? What is your decision going to be? All depends on what, who's watching you. Says Rabbi Yochan, not only any big decision, but any decision, if you have the fear of God on you, like the fear of people, then your life decision is going to change. This is what Rabbi Yochan is saying. So Rabbi Yochan is saying, said, I have to make a huge decision. I had to make a tremendous decision, a decision that I was asked for a request, something that is going to affect the eternity of all the Jewish people forever. Forever. I had to make that. He says, what do you think, I just made it off the whim of my mind? You think I just decided, yeah, I need this thing because I owe him a favor, Rav Tzaddik, and that's why I'm causing it? Rabbi Gamliel, you know, he's a good guy to have a connection, and that's why I'm doing it. Yavna is my, my, my school. And I need, you think that's why he did it? No, he put a lot of thought into it. A lot of... A lot of thinking, of a lot of understanding. What is the right choice to make? And when you think about it, not only what is the right choice to make for me, but now you incorporate a lot of other people. There's God. There's all the Jewish people. There's everything that is in factor. Your decisions in, is going to change in life. The and what did he and, and what? How does it end? It ends off that it says, "Prepare a chair for Chizkiyahu." Meaning that his choice was right. What does Chizkiyahu have to do over here? Why is Chizkiyahu passed away, coming from heaven to escort him to heaven? Chizkiyahu was the only other king that had also Jerusalem surrounded. But Jerusalem did not fall into his hands. He was able to overcome it. You know, there's the time of Sanchev. And then, you know, there was a big plague and wiped out everything. He was successful. So, <coughs> God sends, uh, you know, Chizkiyahu, meaning that, yeah, Rabbi Yochanan and Zaka, you made the right choice. I'm going to send you the person that Jerusalem didn't fall down because the choices that you made were the correct, uh, you know, were the correct choices. Now, what, the, what were the choices he made? If you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, save the yeshiva, save the whole, you know, the, the city of Yavne, you know, save Rab Tzaddik, save the family of Ragamil. These are the big choices. How are these the right choices? How are these more right than anything else? So to understand this, we have to figure out, we have to look at each one. The first thing that he said was, save the city of Yavne. Yavne was the, was the center of Torah learning. Which means, which means is he was saving, if you realize, Torah is, you know, people are able to rebuild with Torah. If you think about it, the, during the time of the, of the Soviet Union, they had, uh, you know, majority of the Jews, unfortunately, you know, went off. But there was a small core group of Jews that kept on studying. In danger, no matter what, they kept on studying Torah, they kept on teaching the Torah. And, you know, from that, once, once the, you know, the, you know, the Soviet Union disintegrated, the, 
their, their, their small few group turns into thousands. And that became the Russian Jewry, became huge, you know, um, you know, after that. You have also during the time of the Holocaust, Hitler destroyed all the yeshivas. Hitler destroyed and burnt all the books, all the holy books. And what happened? We have now in Israel and in America more students than we ever had in, during, you know, during Europe. Even, and this is very hard to say, but I'm pretty sure that we even have in one school in Israel, there's one very, very large school in Israel that has more students now than all the, stud- all the schools in, in, you know, in Germany combined. From, from the Torah, just one. That was just one. So we have the idea that Torah, Torah is the foundation. Torah is the foundation for the Judaism. You cannot go, you cannot be Jewish without the Torah. First of all, Torah is the instructions. How do you know how to be Jewish without the Torah? Says Rabbi Yochanan and Zakah, we need to get the core of Torah, especially the Torah studies, the students, the future rabbis. We need to have them saved because they are the future of the Jewish nation. He says, save, they save the city of Yavne. Then he goes and he says, I want, uh, save, save, uh, Rabbi Gamliel and his, and his family, the Davidic line. What's so important about the Davidic line? Cause that's where Mashiach comes from. He says, we're gonna be going after the destruction of the temple, people are gonna fall down into depression, people are gonna fall out, we had the temple, now we lost it all. What is the point? That's it, we're done, assimilate, that's it, go. He says, no, 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 if we see Rabbi Yochanan, we see the Rabbi, Rabbi, I'm sorry, Rabbi Gamliel, we see the Davidic line, we know that there's still hope, Mashiach is gonna come, Mashiach is gonna come and it's gonna rebuild the entire, the, the third Beta Migdash. So he says, we need this as a, as a, as a part of hope, and hence, that's why he asked for, you know, Rabbi Gamliel. And what about Rabbi Tzaddik? Rabbi Tzaddik was a, a very, very righteous man that fasted for 40 years. He prayed day in and day out for, to push off the destruction of the temple. The Jews, until this time, they had the temple. They were able to be sacrificed at the temple. The connection that they had to God was through the temple. Now all of a sudden was coming, the, you know, the destruction of the temple. How are we supposed to connect to God? How are we supposed to talk to God? We don't have the temple. Said Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh, we need Rabbi Tzaddik. Rabbi Tzaddik, everyone knew, that's what he was. He knew how to connect to God. He was the power of prayer. He was the power of fast. He had this idea. Says Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh, we need him. We need him for the continuation of the Jewish nation. He is going to show everybody how we're supposed to pray, how we're supposed to connect to God. So when Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh is asking these three things, it's not just three minor things, it looks like three minor things, it looks like, especially if you're looking from his passion, he says, what do I care, of course, but what he didn't realize is that Rabbi Yochanan Metzakeh built a foundation that ends up taking over, you know, destroying, putting Rome to the ground, and the Jewish nation is here, and Rome is not, why is that, because we had those three things, we had the prayer, we had the connection to God, we had the Torah, we had the ability to go and understand and continue, know what we're supposed to do, the connection that we had to God, and finally we had the Davidic line, we had, we know that Mashiach is going to come, we had the ability to continue on with our life. Now, this is the idea of Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai. <clears throat> now, when we could push this idea a little bit further, and that is that we said that Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai says that you should have fear of people, you should have fear of God like you have fear of people. Meaning that God is always watching you. If we take this one step further, we say that not only is God watching you always, but everything that happens is orchestrated by God. Everything that happens is not only orchestrated by God, but also that it also happens for the, uh, for the best. Meaning that this is the foundation of the Muna. The foundation of Bittachan, that everything is from God. That not only is God watching you, not only is God orchestrating it, but everything is also ultimately uh, for, uh, for the best. Now we have to look at the destruction of the second temple. And we have to look also at what our mourning. What do we do in our mourning periods? We mourn for, for you know, the, the, the same idea, the same underlining idea. The, the question that is asked is, the first temple was destroyed. Why? Because of murder, idolatry, and sexual immorality. So three big ones. The second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred. Now the obvious question is, come on. Am I, you're comparing murder to baseless hatred? 
Like, if you hate somebody for no reason, and you announce it on social media, he says, I hear by L'Shem Yichud, you know, putting on all of the, you know, the concentration, all the Kabbalistic intentions, and he says, I want to just announce to the public that I hate this person with absolutely no reason, with pure, pure hatred I have for him. Could Bezdin do anything to you? Could they go and put you in prison for it? Could they go and give you lashes for it? They don't do anything. If somebody goes and murders somebody, there's a death penalty for that. If somebody goes and commits adultery, there is, there is punishment that has happened in this world. How can you tell me that murder is, 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 is not as bad as baseless hatred? And why do we see that? The first Bet HaMikdash was destroyed for 70 years. And then we had it rebuilt. The second Bet HaMikdash was destroyed because of baseless hatred for over 2,000 years. And we still don't have it, re- well, almost 2,000 years. And we still don't have it rebuilt. Meaning that this is worse. How can you see that this is worse? And if you really want to tell me that's worse, how come the non-Jews don't have don't have one of the seven mitzvahs ben Enoch as don't be don't, you know don't don't have baseless hatred? Don't speak lashon How come they don't have? It? If it's so important, this is don't murder. We have it. You know, don't steal. That's part of the seven Noachai laws. Why isn't baseless hatred part of it? And the answer is we really have to. We the the idea of baseless hatred is something that is 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 very very particular um, to the Jewish soul. And I heard this from Rabbi Daniel Gladstein. said like this. said that the, your source of your neshama, your source of your soul, is not all what you see over here. Rather, it's all in heaven. And what you have, it sort of trickles down only until it gets to your, to your body and you have like a small little tidbit on it. This is why when you do a mitzvah, when you do a good deed, it affects the whole world. You know why? Because you are in the whole world. It's like you're not even here. Like the majority of you is up there. The here, you just have the, the, you know, the lower portion of you. So everything that you do actually affects it. Now not only that everything that you aff- affects it, but as you go up, it's all interconnected. Like all the Jewish souls are all interconnected. They're all part of one. The, by somebody having baseless hatred, you're destroying the fabric that holds the Jews together. It, it, this, is, this is who we are. We're one. You break one little hole in a boat, it's going to sink. You know, Regardless if it's in your cabin or somebody else's cabin, it doesn't matter. The Vilnagon says, Build for me a beta migdash, says God, and I will dwell inside of it. Build me the temple and I'll dwell inside of it. The question is, why does God need to be dwelling in a temple? Why can't he be dwelling in the most righteous person, you know, in their generation? In the righteous person's house. In his house of the most... Why does it have to be a temple? The answer is, is that in order for God to rest in something, we all have to be part of one heart. We all have to be part of one of one thing. It says, you know, explains the Torah. And it says, when when they went and when they donated to build the temple, it says, Ishki A person whose heart desires will donate. Meaning that you, when you're donating to something, you become part of it. What has become? Your heart becomes part of it. Where it's all part of it. It's my project. You know, it's my project. It's my, you have a you have a close connection. There's a unity in that. Says God, when there's unity and you're dwell, that's where I could dwell. I could dwell. It's not the idea that I need. I need. I need to be with the righteous person. I need you all to be together. And that's why the destruction of the temple because of baseless hatred was not the punishment per se. It's a consequence. The only way that I could be in in this year is only if you're united. Only if you're united together. That's when I could be part of uh, you know in the Beth Hamikdash. If you're united, then I cannot be here. If I cannot be here, there's no point of the Beth Mikdash. And hence, it got destroyed. When <clears throat> there was a, there was once a um, a father that had two, uh, you know, two children and two boys. And the first, you know, boy, as he got older, the father goes to him and says, "Listen, you're coming old of age." It's time for you to go out into the workforce and, you know, go make a living for yourself. I can no longer support you. The boy says, I understand, Father. I appreciate everything you've done. Gives a hug and a kiss. And he goes on in his way. He goes, 
he starts working with, you know, with somebody and Baruch Hashem he's very, very successful. One after another, he's making this and after a few years he's become extremely successful, builds a huge corporation, has, you know, buys a huge mansion, has a huge factory, uh, very, very successful. Years go by, the younger brother also becomes of age. The father tells the same thing. Listen, it's time for you to go on the workforce. I can no longer support you and go and uh, take care of yourself like your brother did. And he says, fine. Gives him a hug and a kiss and he goes out into the world. He goes out into the world. He tries one business, fails. He tries somebody working for somebody, gets fired. He tries this, he tries that. Nothing's going until he loses everything that he started out with. He doesn't have anything. He's homeless. He doesn't have any money. He's starving. And he's like, I'm done. What am I supposed to do? My father doesn't have anything. Where am I going to go? And then he remembers he hasn't spoken to his brother in years. He says, I'm going my brother. My brother is very wealthy. I'll go to my brother. He goes and he finds out which city his brother is in. He finds out that he's in you know, a certain city that's actually pretty far. He decides he's going to make the travels. He finally, after a few days of traveling, he, reach, he, you know, he reaches you know, his brother's city. He starts asking around. And they point to a very, very large mansion. He says, your brother lives over there. And he goes in. He knocks on the door. knocks on the door. No one's answering. He's knocking louder, calling, screaming. Finally, a maid opens up the door. And he says, is this the house of, you know, uh, Mr. and Ms., you know, so-and-so? And she's like, yeah. He's like, um, listen, I'm, I'm her, I'm, you know, his brother. You know, can you tell him I'm here? I want to speak to him. And he said, listen, he's not here right now. He's, you know, he's in the office. Go to the office. Maybe I'll be able to catch him over there. So he says, where's the office? He gave him the address of the office and he makes his way to the office. He goes into this huge factory, sees over there a secretary right in the front. And uh, she says, can I help you? And she says, is this a factory of Mr. You know, so-and-so? And, he's, and she's like, yeah, it is. She says, can you call him? You know, says, I, I want to speak to him. She's like, do you have a, an appointment? And he says, no, but uh, you know, I'm his brother. So she's like, you're his brother? He says, he never mentioned anything about any, any brother. And he's like, just tell him his brother is here. Don't worry about it. And she says, fine. She goes, she runs into the back. She comes out a few minutes later. She says, listen, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you. He says he doesn't have any brother. He says he must have got the wrong place. And he says, is this Mr.? And he says the name again. And she's like, yeah, yeah, that's him. He's like, no, no, no. Tell him, go back again. Tell him his brother. And he says, tell him this is my name. Tell him that I'm here. I'm waiting for him. She goes back, she goes back in, comes out a few minutes later. And he says, uh, she says, listen, you know, you're, you're, you know, I spoke to, you know, the, the boss and he says he doesn't have any brother by this name. And he says, he says, now he started thinking, he says, did I get the wrong guy? He says, he says, um, can you do me a favor? Can you ask him just one more thing? Is his father this and this? Is this his father's name? She goes back and says, is this your father's name? And he says, yeah. And she comes back and says, yeah. He says, what are you kidding me? He says, of course that's my brother. We have the same father, the same this, same last name. He says, of course. I says, I don't know what to tell you. He says, you know, he does, you know, he says, no. And he says, I don't care what he says. And, she st- and he starts walking right into the factory. And she starts screaming at him. He says, you know, I'm going in here. I'm going to call security. He says, call whoever you want. I'm going straight. He walks straight into the brother's, you know, to the brother's office, barges open the door, steers his brother in his face and says, how dare you tell me that you don't have a brother? He says, I'm your brother. What do you mean you're not my brother? You don't remember? You, you look, we look alike. And the, you know, the brother, the wealthy, you know, owner stands up, looks at him in the face and says, I'm sorry, I, I, I've never seen you before. I don't know who you are. And he says, and the way that you're screaming, I don't like it. And he calls security and says, please escort this guy out of the premise and please don't ever come here again. The guy gets thrown out of the factory. He says, I don't understand. He says, what's going on over here? He says, but he, all his doors are locked. What are you supposed to do? You know, he continues with life, but he had no other options, no other choices. Years go by and, you know, the, the both brothers get a message from the father. And the message reads that, you know, the father is very sick, the time is coming, and he wants to see both the brothers. So both the brothers, you know, come in. Uh, you know, they haven't spoken to each other since that thing. Obviously, you know, the, the brother, the, you know, the poor one was very hurt, didn't even look at the other brother. And they go in and they, um, and they sit in front of the father. The father addresses just the poor brother, ignores completely the wealthy one. He says, you know, you're my favorite son. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. He says, I'm so proud of you for everything that you have accomplished in life and gives him blessing after blessing, completely ignoring the other brother. For hours, this guy's just talking just one-on-one as if the other one's not there. 
And every time the other brother tried to interject, you know, the father kept on talking louder as if he's, you know, just, I'm, you know, I'm talking to somebody over here, you know, please. You know, he's talking, and uh, eventually, after a few hours, the wealthy brother couldn't do it anymore. He stands up, he smacks at the table, says, I don't understand. He says, I'm also your son. He says, why are you not talking to me? And the father looks at him and he says, if he is not your brother, I am not your father. We come and we pray to God. We say, Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven. And we're asking, Father, please, Father, please, can you help us with this? We need Parnassah, we need money, we need to buy this, we need to play for the mortgage. We need the, there's so many things that we pray for God for. Our Father, our Father. And our Father in heaven goes and it says, it says, I'm your Father. It says, but you don't treat the other Jews like your brother. It says, if they're not your brothers, then I'm not your Father. It says, we don't, you know why we have so much problems now? It says, because of the lack of unity. We don't have that connection even to our Father in Heaven. If we start loving each and every Jew like our brother, then we will have a Father in Heaven that's going to be like, yes, of course. I mean, of course we have our Father in Heaven. Don't get me wrong. And our Father, we should always pray to our Father. But think about the power of prayer that you'll have, the power that you'll have a connection when, yeah, this is my brother. We're all one. We're all united. The, the idea, now we have to think about baseless hatred. We're going to close off with this, uh, you know, with the, you know, actually, a few more minutes or we'll finish off. When, uh, what is the idea of baseless hatred? How, what does that even mean? How can you, you know what baseless hatred means? Baseless hatred means, um, you know, someone comes over to you and says, uh, do you know this guy, um, you know, Charlie, you know, Shatowski, whatever. Um, and, and you're like, no, no, I've never, I've never met him before. He's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's him right over there. He's, he's a, he just, you know, he just moved in from uh, Mars. Uh, you know, he's, he's right over here. No one ever seen him before. And he's like, so what do you think about Charlie? And you say, I hate him. I hate him with my, I hate him so, I just, I just want only bad things to happen to him. You know, like, that's baseless hatred. You know, that's hating for absolutely no reason. You have no idea what this guy is. You have absolutely no connection, no prior understanding, and you hate him. That is baseless hatred. Who do you know has baseless hatred? Some people hate their face. People say, I don't like the way he looks. That's not baseless. You hate his face. I mean, that's a reason. Some people, you know, hate somebody because they stole money. That's not, that's a reason. What is baseless hatred? It's a, can you understand that? What does it mean that I hate somebody for no reason? Everything has a reason. It's so difficult to hurt, to hate somebody for no reason at all. Like, no, no, I'm, L'shem Shemayim, I'm hating him for absolutely no reason. You know, like, just solely for the sake of hating. That's it, that's all I'm doing. I have absolutely nothing against this person, I just hate him completely. It doesn't work that way, there's always a reason. So why and how do we say that the temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred? What is baseless hatred? The, Vilna Gaon goes, and, and actually before we go with that, the 40, the, the, the spy, the, during the time of the spies, in Parsha Shalach, God Tells Moshe, if you want to send spies, send spies. Moshe sends spies, the spies come back. When did they come back? On the 9th of Av. They came back on the 9th of Av, and with a very, very bad report. What was the, the report? It's very bad, Israel. They, you know, they have monstro, you know, like the giants, you know, everybody's on steroids over there. Like, we can't, you know, even the fruits and vegetables are on steroids. Like, you're not going to be able to defeat. It's a very, very, you know, very, very strong place. And what did the people do? The people started crying. They started crying. They're like, we're not going to make it. We're not going to survive. We're not going to be able to, 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 you know, pass this ordeal. And God says, oh, you're crying. You're crying for absolutely no reason at all. So now I'm going to make it a day that you're going to cry. And Tisha B'Av, that was a day of both the destructions of both temples. And we have many, many other problems that happened on Tisha B'Av. Now the question is, he says, what's the problem about crying? Ah, you're not allowed to cry for no reason? Baltashas, you can't waste tears? Like, is it a problem if you just cry for no reason? Like what? You don't get, God says, ah, you're crying for no reason at all? Fine, so let them cry. Where is it saying that you're not allowed to cry? You were not say that you have to cry only for a specific reason. No, you can cry whatever you want. It's an emotion. You cry whatever you want. Why is God punishing the Jewish people and saying, oh, you're crying for no reason. Now you're going to get punished. And the answer is it's not because of the tears. 
It's the source of those tears. What was the source of the tears? God told the Jewish nation the land is good. If God told the Jewish people the land is good, there is no reason for you to cry. God told you, why are you scared? God told you of it. There's a lack of emunah. You don't have any, any faith in God. If you don't have any faith in God, ah, now, now you're going to have a problem. Since now you don't have any faith in God, this is going to be, uh, you know, this is going to be a problem. Now when we go back to the first thing that we said, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, we said the whole essence of it was really, was really an underlining of Munah. If you believe, if you fear God like you fear other people, what means is that you always know that God's watching you. And if you always know that God's watching, you know that also God's orchestrating everything that you're doing. And if you know that God's orchestrating everything you're doing, you know that He's doing everything for the best. If you have all that, then you have the faith of God, then you have Munah, then nothing's gonna be able to, to, you know, to, you know, to take you down. And this is why it says in the Pasuk in Vayikra, in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, it says, You have to love your friend like yourself. I am God. Why does the Torah end? The Pasuk ends. You have to love your friend like yourself. I am God. Like, why do we have to stick in I am God into that, in that sentence? You should love your friend like yourself. Finish. That's it. What is Ani Hashem? I, like, I am God. And the answer is, is that if you know that I am God, if you know that there is a God that's watching everything, then you will Then you will love every single Jew of yourself because there is never going to be a hatred. Because if you believe that everything is from God, you will never have any problem. You will always love everybody. You will always love everybody like yourself because there's no, what are you shooting the messenger? Because somebody did something wrong to you? Because it doesn't, the, the, the test is a test of faith. And that's why when we spoke about Mashiach, and we'll finish with this, when we spoke about Mashiach, we said there was a very interesting Yalkut, Yalkut Haro'im, that we mentioned, that said that during that time there's going to become a very, very, in the end of days, that Israel and the Arabs are going to fight over the temple, right, which is also obviously now. And, um, the, is, the Jews are going to say the temple is ours. The Arabs are going to say the temple is ours. And fine, and the Jews are going to, and the Arabs are going to say, listen, and the Jews are going to come into agreement. Let's make a sacrifice wherever the fire comes down, that's what we decide. So if the fire works for the Jews, you all, you all give us a temple. If the fire goes into Arabs, we'll become Islam, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll turn to your side. So they said fine. And the Jews build a temple and the Arabs build a temple. And guess where the fire comes down? To the Arab side. To the Arab side. And the Arab said, Ah! Now you have to come and convert to us. And he says, never. We're never. You're going to take us by sword, but we're never going to convert. And this is where, you know, we spoke about it in the Shiaf series, what's going to happen afterwards. They went and they asked Rabbi Elchanan Wasman, is this really what's going to happen? The fire is going to come down. This, Rabbi Elchanan Wasman said it's not going to be like, it's going to be exactly like this, but not like this. Meaning that the idea, the final test before Mashiach comes, is going to be a, taste, a test in faith. It's going to look like the other side is, is right. And that is the final test. The final test that we have is a taste, the test of emunah. And that's why many, many rabbis say, you know what, the final test that we have to work in our generation is belief in our faith in heaven. A faith in heaven. And that is the underlining problem, and if we look at it, of the entire destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple of baseless hatred. What is baseless hatred? The only reason that you're hating somebody is because you don't believe that everything comes from God. If you believe that it comes from God, then you're not going to hate anybody. If you're not going to hate anybody, you're going to have a strong faith, then Mashiach is going to come. And this is what Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka was, was, was saying, that have the fear of people, fear, yeah, yeah, have fear of God like you have the fear of people because if you really find out that circuit that you really that God is overseeing anything then you're not going to have any problems B'zad Hashem we're not going to deal with that and B'zad Hashem we'll have Mashiach and B'zad Hashem this Tisha B'Av will not need to be at Tisha B'Av and we'll have the Bet HaMikdash B'Mehera B'Amenu You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com